Welcome to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron. This is a weekly investing podcast where I chat with my friend Tony. Tony's a very successful investor. He's been doing it for about 30 years. His returns on average are about double the market over that period of time. And he's able to get those returns because he developed a system of value investing that we call QAV, quality at value. How do you find good quality companies and how do you buy them at a discount to their intrinsic value? It's basically a scoring system. We look at the fundamentals of the companies and that's what we teach our club members. Uh, in terms of the podcast, we have a free episode each week, goes for about half an hour. That's what you're listening to now. We have a longer episode, usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, <laughs> let's get into this week's show. All right. QAV 650, back with TK in the, in the studio, in the booth. TK in the booth down in Cape Shank, the Cape Shank booth. Mm. How are you, TK? Very well, thank you. Enjoying my time down here. Enjoyed your week off? Played some golf? Yes, played some golf. Yeah, we'll talk about it in after hours. Charlie died, Tony. Yeah, what in a shame. between when we last talked and today, and I, I did talk about him a bit last week, but I thought you'd probably want to throw your uh, two cents in. So, yeah, um, you know, you, you're the person who first told me about Charlie Munger many years ago. I'd never heard of the guy before, but you told me about him and told me that you thought he was even better than Warren and that I should get a book and read it, and I did eventually. Uh, tell me about your your love life with Charlie Munger, your relationship with Charlie Munger. How, how long ago did you discover Charlie Munger? Well, I would say I was just talking to Alex about this before. I'd say mid-90s was when I discovered Charlie Munger through Warren Buffett, through the making of an American capitalist, the Roger Lowenstein book, which I mm-hmm. heartily recommend for anybody. Mm. Mm. And then from there, just kept vacuuming up all the stuff I could read about Buffett and Munger. But the good thing about, about reading about Munger is it wasn't just about investing. It was about there were lots of philosophy of life things. There was lots of... Um, Oh well, I mean, he he wrote a book called Lattice Work, um, or the Lattice. I think it was called Lattice Work, about how you should try and understand as much as you can about all all different um, educational areas, because so, they all um, they all interlink like a lattice, and then that that forms the backdrop to your investing decisions. Because it, you know, he he'd talk about how. Uh, Casinos would use psychology to get gamblers to to gamble, and how poker machines flash lots of lights and play loud noise to attract people to to that particular machine. And um, you know, he said, if you want to, if you, you shouldn't gamble in casinos, but if you want to gamble in the casino, find a, the quietest poker machine in the darkest corner. It's probably the one they're trying to hide that, that pays out the most. Um, so, just little wits and wisdoms like that have always, I think, been just. Just little bon mots in life. He's he's just been spot on. And and the poor Charlie's Almanac is a great read. And I've got a copy at home signed by Charlie, actually. Wow. And um, it's based on Ben Franklin's book. Um, what was that one called now? Poor Someone's Almanac. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, which was a book about Ben Franklin's wisdom on farming. And we still use some of those sayings today about the early bird catches the worm and you you – so what you reap and all those kinds of things. Um, so they were like aphorisms that 
that Ben Franklin used, and uh, and then Charlie's sort of had the same sort of style of of passing on knowledge. It's it really it it does talk for hours and hours and hours, but the the concepts are just distilled into a couple of couple of words, and they're always spot on. And and if you know, I went along to the Berkshire Hathaway fiftieth AGM, and Warren would talk for hours, and he'd throw it to Charlie, and Charlie would just say a very simple sentence, which would just sum up everything. And sometimes he'd say, "I have nothing further to add," and that was <laughs> that was just as good. <laughs> so Paul Richards, uh, yeah, look, Paul Richards' Almanac. Thank you, Paul Richards' uh, because Almanac, because yeah. he used a pseudonym to publish it, Richard Saunders. Right. Okay. Yeah, I haven't looked at it for a long time. Um, but yeah, I was sad for his passing. I mean, it was expected. I mean, the guy was ninety-nine; he was a month shy of his hundredth birthday. So mm. to even get to be that old, I think, is amazing as well, because they. They've never been um, shy at eating uh, about their diets, about how they eat peanut brittle and Coke and drink Coke and all that kind of thing. And and uh, I'm not sure about Charlie, but Warren loves a good steak and would often conduct business at Borat Steakhouse in Omaha. So, um, yeah, it's just amazing that they they lived. And I think I think one of the reasons is they just didn't they just didn't entertain any sort of bullshit at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one of the answers that Charlie gave at the AGM that I went to was uh, someone, um, you know, someone who just graduated from college and stood up and said, uh, "What kind of person are you looking for to employ at Berkshire Hathaway?" And Warren gave a long-winded answer and he threw it to Charlie, and Charlie said, "Someone who sees it like it is." Mm. I just thought, yeah, that's Charlie. He sees it like, tells it like it is, and sees it like it is. That's a no bullshit approach to things, and and I think that's. Um, you know, one of these, you know, um, Bon Mots that he just, he says so little, but you think about it for such a long time afterwards, telling it like it is and seeing it like it is is such a powerful concept. But, you know, he he taught me so many things. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing I want to call, you know, out my indebtedness to Charlie for is is that they shared their wisdom. They didn't, they didn't keep it quiet. They could have potentially made a lot more money if they just had to shut up and kept investing themselves. But they shared. They were happy to take people along. They were happy to talk to people. This, in the last couple of weeks since his passing, I've heard so many stories of people who said, "You know, I first met Charlie X many years ago, and we sat down and spoke for four hours." Like it was just, he was always very generous with his time with people, and and I think that was part of his learning as well. He was endlessly curious, as he says. He says to people, "Be endlessly curious and ever learning," and that's that's important too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was, and. Um, you know, he's remembered for not just for his investing, but he's remembered for his philanthropy and he's remembered for his, um, you know, he got involved in architecture and designing um, science labs that the university used to go to and all sorts of different things like that. And I think that's also been a nice part about Charlie as well as Charlie died with a much smaller fortune than Buffett. I think it was about two and a half billion US or something of that order, which is probably, you know, many orders of magnitude less than what Warren Buffett's worth because Warren famously never cashed in a Berkshire Hathaway share. But Charlie was happy to cash in and donate or cash in and support his um, university or or even just, you know, buy a boat, <laughs> buy a better car, um, buy a better house. Charlie, Charlie's folly. And then what yeah. uh, Warren called his boat. <laughs> Correct. But Warren was happy Mungus to go out folly. <laughs> one of the one of the um, 
uh, anecdotes I used in the show last week was uh, the the law firm MTO, I think, that he set up before he, you know, went full-time with Warren that still retains his name. One of the pieces of advice he gave the law firm before he left was choose your clients like you would choose your friends. I thought there was so much yeah. in that. Like just he strikes me as a guy, as does Warren, who spent most of his life uh, – building the life that he wanted um as you said like no idiots no dickheads they sort of mm-hmm. had a no dickhead rule mm-hmm. no no bullshit no stress um they just built life happily doing the things that they chose to do hanging out with each other you know warren mm-hmm. at least in the book which the paul charlie almanac book which was a few decades old by the time he passed away but warren said i think in that that they'd been working together for, I don't know, 40 years and had never had an argument in 40 mm. years. So we've disagreed on things, but we've never had an argument, mm. which says a lot. And they talk many times a day, according to Warren and Charlie too. So it must have been scope. And 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 Warren jokes about Charlie being the abominable no man because he would always <laughs> say, Warren was the ideas guy and Charlie would just keep saying no. <laughs> <laughs> the abominable no man. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So what a well, life. I really, yeah. I mean, you know, hats off to Charlie. Thank you, Charlie, and valet Charlie. It's It's been a wonderful experience growing old with him. Yeah, and I'm grateful that, uh, you know, since we've been doing this show, I had the opportunity to get to know who he was better and watch some of the last Berkshire Hathaway AGMs that he got to do and Ooh. to have the opportunity to see him live and in real, well, quasi live, like it was probably the next few hours later when I watched it, but uh, to see him deliver his uh, insights and wit while he was still alive, I'm grateful for that. That was a joy yeah, to behold. Was. And he didn't hold back. He would he would tell it like it is, you know, he he held some very um, strong views on, for example, China and its importance in the world and and its um, you know possibilities as an investment destination, which weren't which were kind of against the the mainstream sort of thoughts on the country at the time and still are. Yeah, yeah. And his views on Bitcoin and gold and <laughs> yes. EBITDA, and we'll remember him. You know, that's I mean, what a life well lived. Like he mm. contributed much. Um, in terms of wisdom and humor and um, inspiration, yeah, and all those plus the money that he donated, et cetera, et cetera. But I also think too, there's a couple of other points I wanted to make. I mean, um, it's one thing to say you you see it like it is and tell it like it is, but it's another thing to do it. And you can you can see Charlie's fingers doing that all the time at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and I, and I you know was thinking about that this morning. It was you know if you look at Berkshire Hathaway and and the early days when when Charlie joined, and they would have discussions about how, you know should the company have any debt, should they be leveraging to borrow, and they both agreed that they shouldn't and they shouldn't take on debt. So then the question is, well, if we if we accept that as a guiding principle, how do we fund this damn business to grow? And they just kept looking around and looking around, and they found the I think it's called the Green Green Stamps Trading Company. I think it was called Green Stamps, Blue Stamps, maybe. But it was basically a very early version of flybys where in the in the 60s and 70s, um, people would get stamps when they went and shopped somewhere and then they could 
they could lick them and put them on a sheet and send them into the head office and then get redeem it for a prize or a, some goods or a discount or whatever. And and Warren and Charlie bought that very early on during that. I think probably just after they bought Berkshire Hathaway, but very early on. Um, they bought it because they worked out there was all this money sitting in head office that was unredeemed from the trading stamps that hadn't been collected, and that was their funding. So then when they then used that pool of funds to go and buy seized candy, and they could do that because they worked out this way of funding their business without breaking their principle of going into debt. So mm. it's it's that kind of unrelenting problem solving that also is a part of seeing it like it is and telling it like it is. It's all over Berkshire Hathaway. So one of the questions I had when I did the show last week is, uh, again, rereading Charlie's speeches that are at the back of poor Charlie's almanac. Um, uh, He talks about checklists and pilots and using a checklist. Really? Um, And I was, you know, trying to figure out if you got the checklist idea from him first or when you read the checklist manifesto and in fact, if you read that because of something Charlie said, or you got it independently. Yeah, it's a good question. I I don't remember getting it from poor Charlie's almanac. I got it from when I read the checklist manifesto. Um, Right. So we just heard about that. Which I think would have come out after poor Charlie's almanac. Pretty sure it did. Yeah. Right. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, there was that, that idea was lying in plain sight before yeah, yeah. the checklist manifesto. So if I had been on the ball, I could have done it earlier. But yeah, that just, and again, that just shows how smart he is to have picked that up before the book about it was written. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess we could talk about Charlie till the cows come home. Mm. We should, we should move on, but um, yeah. Well, the last thing to... I wanted to say was, um, you know, he's passed on a little bit about investing in the, in the, his most recent years and has reflected on, how he does it as opposed to Berkshire Hathaway because there are differences. Um, and he, the way he started referring to Berkshire Hathaway in the end was one of his four-stock portfolio. Hmm. And he talked about having a four-stock portfolio. He thought that was about the right sort of portfolio to have. But you had to, you had to live through the volatility and stomach it. But um, he thought that was the best way to get returns. Uh, and, um, you know, he looked in the other companies he had in that portfolio. He looked for companies which obeyed his I think he called it the 10% cap or 10% rule, but basically a company that could make more profits than 10%, but capped them at 10% and gave the extra back in, in lower prices to customers and in better, um, you know, better payments to staff and, um, and I guess investing in the business. So he saw that as the sort of perfect business to invest in. Um, so there's a bit of wisdom there if people are out there trying to copy Charlie. Um, I, I've thought about which companies might be like that in Australia, and I think ARB comes to mind. Um, I, I've never heard them express that sentiment, but um, looking at the company, I think they might be obeying that rule. So, yeah, so um, I have been thinking a lot about the way Charlie invested as well, um, which he revealed more of at the end. I think you talked about that principle in one of his speeches referring to Sam Walton and Walmart and why Walmart was able to, you know, defeat all of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Keep profits low and keep giving it back to customers and staff. Yep. And I think also flowing from that too, um, Charlie had another guiding principle for me, which was he he always wanted to only be around people who were 
I guess I'll call it relationship driven rather than transactional driven. So he had no time for people who had a win-lose mentality when it came to business transactions. It always had to be a a win-win for both parties and a long-term gain for both parties. And I think that's a really good principle. I mean, if I think about all the people who I don't respect, they're the ones who just try and screw everyone just Mm. to make more money. And I think that's wrong too. So hats off to Charlie Mm. for that one. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always admired about Charlie and Warren is they do seem to conduct themselves with a high degree of integrity and they they look for that in the people they work with and invest with um this high level of morals and values and integrity that's the sort of companies the sort of people that they wanted to invest in which yeah. um is a dying um value system i think in capitalism yeah well it's always been it's always been a part of capitalism but it's always there's always been the dark side as well i think People who are just transactional based on, you know, all you yeah. are to them is is someone to take money off rather than a mm-hmm. partner. Yeah. So that's, I think, all I had to say. I've got a pulled pork ready to go on, uh, find my notes, pulled pork on Ingham's, Ingham's Chickens, I-N-G. <laughs> I tried to buy Ingham's for my super portfolio this morning uh, and couldn't because they're well, you're not lucky because I'm doing a pulled pork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're not they're apparently not top 300, not big enough. Oh, really? Them. Well, yeah, they're not. And I think I've tried and not been able to buy them before. This is with Australian Super. They're not on the approved list. But wow. um I I I did my analysis on them this morning and was going, "Wow, they've had a nice little run." Mm. Mm, well, I had I the same there. thought. So, pulled pork on Ingham's I'm surprised they're okay. not on the ASX 300, though, because their ADT is nearly $5 million per day. Yeah. yeah I don't know why Don't know why um, mm. Oz Super doesn't allow them. Anyway, maybe they've got anyway. a beef with the chicken. A beef with the chicken? Yeah, you like that? <laughs> I do. It's <laughs> the title for the episode, Beef with the Chicken. <laughs> beef with chicken, yeah. <laughs> uh, red, and, red and white meat. Um <laughs> They've been on the buy list before too. I remember looking at them. I yeah. think I owned them about three or four years ago, so they've been around for a while. But they I did stuff badly. Pork on them before. Oh, have I? I was trying to find something I hadn't. If I had, it must have been a long time ago. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like years ago. Yeah. Oh, well, sorry for repeating myself. I was trying to find something new. There wasn't much that no. I hadn't done a pulled pork on. I was thinking about that yeah. today too. I do one a week, and there's fifty odd stocks on the buy list. I sort of go. Have to recycle them after a year. Eighth, eighth of June, two thousand and twenty-one. Tony. Okay, so two and a half years yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh well, you can just just cut that and put it into cut, this. <laughs> put <section>. it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can talk. They had we can a, keep talking uh, about Charlie. <laughs> well, the CEO had only resigned a couple of months uh, earlier, and the share price dropped. You sold it at the time. Mm-hmm. Wasn't prepared for a CEO. Wasn't a prepared for CEO change. You said there was a bit of a red flag. Uh, you said that the new CEO could make big changes, clearing the deck. So now mm-hmm. you'll be able to get us up to date. What's the new CEO done? This is good. He's it's like done the well. sequel. This He's is well. uh, Ingham's part two. Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, it's been on the buy list before. Uh, it, it really s- suffered during COVID. So it's this is a bit of a recovery stock at the moment. And um, it's just crossed this buy line again, so it's back on the buy list. People people weren't eating chicken during COVID? No. Well, the, the yes and no. I mean, um, 
they they had supply chain issues and constraints. Oh, I, yeah, right. I think some of the feedstock to feed the chickens may have been coming from overseas. So they've done a lot of work now on on their own, on producing their own feed. They they one of the strengths of this company is they like to be vertically integrated. So it's um they own the process from hatch to dispatch, as they say. Um so they've got the the they hatch the chickens and farm the chickens and kill the chickens and pack the chickens and refrigerate the chickens and send them off to the supermarkets or to KFC. It's like it's not the human centipede, it's the chicken centipede. It's just chickens <laughs> inside of chickens. It's like a Tadurkin. Following chickens. <laughs> well, they do do turkeys as well, funnily enough. <laughs> well, there you go. There they you can go, do yeah. the turkey. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who worked for the government department called Burst Desk and Marriages, and she used to call it Hatch, Match, and Dispatch. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's cute. Yeah. Good. That'd be a good name for a film. We should write Hatch, that film. That'll be our ne- that could be our next film. I like that. All weddings and a funeral, Hatch, Match, and Dispatch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to, back to Wingham's. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure where they were constrained during COVID. They, um, I, with, I'm poor. So they sell a lot through supermarkets, but they also sell a lot through what they call, I think it's um, QSR, which is the quick service restaurant. So Hungry Jacks and KFC and all those. So I think they may have also um, suffered during the during the COVID period as well. But anyway, they're um, they're getting back. Uh, back to business and back to where they were pre-COVID at the moment. Uh, what else can I say about them? Biggest chicken and turkey breeder and distributor in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they also now have a, a, a stock feed division, which is mainly for their own use, but also they resell to other primary producers like pig farms. Uh, vertically integrated business, as I said. I guess some some of the interesting things that they call out, which makes a lot of sense, is the poultry market is growing, um, both for health reasons, as people are, are recommended to uh, eat le- less red meat, um, but also for price point reasons. So, um, chicken has uh, is one of the cheaper meats you can buy in a supermarket, um, and it's much cheaper on a cost per kilo basis than red meat. Um, so people are, are moving to that in these kinds of times when inflation's hitting and belts are being tightened. Um, and the last, I guess, uh, potential um, tailwind for this company is that the carbon footprint on farming chickens is five times lower than for red meat So because of all the methane the cattle produce. So um, there is a, a, a certain segment of the market who are interested in eating white meat for that reason as well. Um I think one of the good things about uh, one of the uh, one of the points the company's called out in their latest results is uh, they've been able to increase their prices to reflect the, the cost input inflation that they're having. So, which is always a good thing to see. So, as their as their costs have gone up because of supply chain increases, they've been able to pass it on to the supermarkets and the and the QSR restaurants, the the quick service restaurants. So that's a good thing. Um, I think, look, it's a pretty stock standard basic business, so I can go through the pros and cons at the end and the risks and positives. But to get to the numbers, because they're pretty good, um, as we said, large ADT stock, $5 million a day traded, plenty of liquidity. Uh, share price is $3.90 when I did this analysis. Um, that's less than the, the consensus target, but it is greater than IV1 and IV2. Um 
the yield on this company is 3.79%. So it's not high enough to score for us, but it's still reasonable. Uh, Stock Doctor Financial Health was is strong, but the trend, they, they list the trend as deteriorating, which we give a minus one, two in the checklist. But when I had a look, I couldn't see why. So if you look at Stock Doctor for uh, ING and look at its financial health, it's it's been strong forever. It hasn't changed, and nor is it forecast to go down. So I'm a little bit surprised at that. That may be an error. But anyway, it's still on the buy list regardless. For people who are interested, it's a high ROE company, 39%, which is very high. Um, unfortunately, so is the PE, 20.4 times. Um, but it's not the highest or the lowest over the last three years, so we don't uh, score it negatively for that. But it is kind of high um, given that it's on our buy list. Uh, and also, too, because the prop calf, the price to operating cash flow for this company is only four times. So I guess there's a lot, um, a lot of cost to soak up uh, from the cash flow that's coming in, but it scores well from a prop calf measure for us. Net equity per share is only 54 cents, so we can't score it um, for being available to buy at book value or book value plus 30 because the price is $3.90. The other interesting thing about this company, which I think is probably driving at share price, is that earnings per share forecast growth is 72%, which is huge. And I guess, I guess again, reflecting this um, return from COVID for the business. Uh, but growth over P is 3.5 times, which is way over what we want to see in a business, and we score it well for that. Uh, Mr. Ringham isn't around anymore in the business, so he can't give it an owner-founder. He was a um, a big racehorse owner and breeder, so um, anyone who follows the the Nags will know about the Ingham family. And he's, I think it's his daughter, it might be his granddaughter, uh, was an owner of Winks, um, one of the big, most successful racehorses going around in the recent times. Um, the, the company doesn't have consistently increasing equity, and that's largely for the COVID years. Um, otherwise, it has been going up consistently, but we don't score it. Uh, it's a new three-point trend line buy since the last result, so we score it for that. So all in all, it's eight out of 16 for quality, which is 50%. And as I said, I think Stock Doctor may have made a mistake calling it a deteriorating financial stock because I think it's actually going to improve, if not stay where it is, at least. Um, so I think the quality score is undercooking it a little bit. Uh, QAV score is 0.12, um, again, because of that low prop cap. So that's good. In terms of the risk for this company, um, I think you got to call out with any sort of primary producer company, there's always, you know, agricultural-based risks. Um, so typically if the weather turns or, if, you know, we go into a, um, a very hot El Nino or there's bushfires or there's floods that can affect primary production, probably chickens less than most because um, I think they would be contained a lot to factories. Um, so that would help. Um, but it's, it's still primary production is always a, um, a cyclical business because of the weather. Uh, to some to some extent, anyway, um, and there are also you know with these businesses biosecurity risks. It wouldn't take a whole lot um, for some kind of chicken disease, um, avian bird flu, or something to to get loose in the in Australia and decimate the industry. Not that it has, and they do they do take stringent security, you know, um, uh, protocols uh, to uh, to stop that. But you just have to look at say the bee industry recently, which was hurt by a um, an outbreak of a particular disease from Newcastle that spread quickly through Australia to, to look at how bad these things can affect an industry. Um, the weather, of course, is a risk for their feedstock, and they've got their own feedstock business now, so that could be a risk if a 
even if the chickens aren't um, hurt by bad weather or fire or flood, that it's potentially, um, it's more that the grain side of their business, the feedstock side of their business is more prone to that. And that might be an issue. Um, of course, COVID hurt them badly. So any other sort of pandemic or something similar, um, which closes supply chains would be an issue. Um, and the last risk I've got down here is growth, because if you take out COVID from its results, this company hasn't traded out of a sort of a range of around three bucks, you know, three to four dollars for a long time. Um, I guess if you take COVID out of it, it went down then. Uh, and I think that's an indication of the fact that they pretty much own the market in Australia and New Zealand. And um, it's it's that's a good thing because it gives them pricing power and it gives them stability um, in the in the hard times. But it, it, with these kinds of companies, growth is always an option. And you've got to be careful of that, that someone comes in and says, oh, I know what to do to grow this business. I'm going to go and inquire something, which isn't as attractive, or I'm going to try and expand overseas, which has had a checkered result for Australia. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. They've generally, they've definitely been focused on recovering from COVID. So that's a good thing. And they've, they've um, uh, fixed up some of the problems that COVID identified in their supply chains and, and operational issues. So that's a good thing too. Um, but the, the positives that go with this business is I think the the tailwinds coming with the trend towards white meats for the various reasons. And I think also too with this particular company, the vertical integration. So um, it, it, sometimes in primary production industries, you get margins on margins as, as you know, someone, someone fattens the cow, someone kills the cow, someone takes the milk, processes the milk, someone, um, you know, cuts the cow up and refrigerates it and sends it, someone else sends it out to the, the, the supermarket. So there's usually, you know, four or five margins in this value chain. So, to take those out of the equation or to give them all to the one company is actually a very strong positive for, for Ingham. So I see that as a strength too. So, yeah, so take a look. It's it's back on the buy list and it's trending up and it's um it's not a bad business. They needed to duck in their business model. Just to, to, to duck in? To duck in their business model, like, <laughs> you know, vertical integration, stick it all, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, when does a new CEO come in and say, we should be buying stuffing? That's our, our next acquisition. We don't own the stuffing market. <laughs> well, you kind of, you, you hinted at it earlier, though. Um, the the COP28 uh, confab that's going on at the moment, I saw in the ABC this morning, they're saying we need to move away. The world needs to move away from red meat towards Ooh. chicken. So, you know, if we all cut out eating red meat in Australia, there's a whole new market for them to- Correct. Yeah. Gobble up there. Gobble up. Gobble up. Yeah, yeah. with the turkey. That's yeah. the turkey and the chicken part of the business. They can gobble, yeah. gobble. Eat, eat one for QAV. <laughs> really? Is that our new slogan? Eat one for QAV? <laughs> yeah. Hello, it's- Alex. Hello. <laughs> uh, Hi, how are Hi. you? How are you, Alex? Hi, Dal. Hi. I'm going to just call you Dal. So, hi, Dal. Sure. Good? <laughs> Good, thank you. How are you? <laughs> We had an epic day yesterday. Um, My mates live in St Kilda and Luna Park gave out free tickets to just the residents of St Kilda. So we took, well, I was included in in a group of six of us just going and spending the afternoon. It was great. Fantastic. At Luna Park, did you go on any rides? Yeah, Scenic Railway was off, unfortunately, because it was kind of a weird, muggy, rainy um, day, but perfect for Luna Park. <laughs> so I went on the spider, went on everything but the scenic railway and the and the ghost train. 
I, no, good for you. Doesn't matter how many toddlers I see on it, I still can't convince myself to get on the ghost train. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been on a ride at Luna Park, and I don't think I ever will. I'd be more inclined to go on the one at Dream World where everyone got crushed to death a few years ago than go for a ride at Luna Park. Oh. Luna Park just looks scary and rickety as hell. Looks like it was made out oh, of yeah. reclaimed timber 250 years ago from a ghost house. So every time I'm down that way, I'm looking at it like, who are these people taking their lives into their hands going on these rides? But so more power to anyone who's brave enough to do that. So you survived Luna Park. Uh, hopefully you got a T-shirt for that. Yes. Do you have a question for us, AK? I have a question. Yeah, no T-shirt, but a question um, from Phil. So he asks, if QAV scores don't differentiate returns, and he says, on the last podcast, you talked about how the cutoff of 0.2 was potentially no different to a 0.1% cutoff. Does that suggest that the system is actually more based on momentum and minimising losses? That's a great question, Phil. Um, I think I think potentially at the moment, Yes. Um, but over the long term, no. So uh, I, I think this is one of the issues I've been calling out about researching these things is that we're usually at the moment fairly small timeframes to research them, and it's been a it's been a choppy market. So um, I think that might be factoring into the QAV cutoff score because originally we looked at this again because Dylan a few years back looked at it over 10 years and found out there was a big difference between the QAV score of 0.2 and 0.1. Um, so that's that's why I couldn't be very definitive with the current research um, and decided to set up my own trial portfolio to see. Um, and I'll, you know, I need to pull that together and, and present it at some stage. It's been going for a while now. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think you, could, you could be right, Phil, for the moment. Uh, I think traditionally in the past, though, we have seen the other metrics on the QAV checklist have a big impact um, on the on the scores. Uh, might just be the sort of market we're in at the moment that they're being played down a bit. Well, my question when I read this, Tony, was that mm-hmm. let me start again. I, the way I thought about it was that well, the the QA. V score surely does have a level of importance. Like if we if we took away the cutoff mm-hmm. and we were buying things with a negative QAV score, mm-hmm. surely that would make a difference in theory to the performance. I mean, I I know that you came up with point one as a cutoff originally just because you know you 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 felt like that was giving you enough that mm-hmm. you needed to play with mm-hmm. was sort of an arbitrary cutoff. Mm-hmm. But the QAV score is based in part on the quality score, and the quality score is measuring the company's quality in a whole bunch of metrics that we look at. So the lower the quality score, the lower the QAV score, the lower the QAV score, the less good – it's my Bundaberg education – coming through there, the, the 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 less successful the business is in terms of its ability to generate cash and its performance over time and all of those metrics that we evaluated at. So I would say that the QAV score does differentiate returns. Mm-hmm. 
what your report that we covered last week was looking at was whether or not there's a big difference between a 0.1 cutoff and a 0.2 cutoff. Correct. Yeah. But it, that doesn't say to me that the QAV scores don't matter. I think they do matter. It's just the cutoff that is a little bit arbitrary. Yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment. Um, the, res- the research we did recently was to see whether you were more successful from buying from the bottom of the buy list than the top of the buy list which was, um, wasn't even a test of whether 0.2 or 0.1 was a better score. It was just that. Uh, and, and it didn't have a big difference in those results. And that's been my experience too over time. But you're right. Um, interestingly, and, and look, there's research that backs up the fact that value investing works better than growth investing and other types of investing. I think we had um, the Stockopedia guy on who said something similar, that there were only three things that they'd found that outperformed. One was growth, one was momentum, and one was quality which is the three stool, three legs to the QAV stool. So um, that's certainly been my experience as well. However, having said that, if you, if, you took, if you look at the QAV list that we produce and we have stocks that go well below the QAV cutoff on the list, you can still find stocks that do well with a poor score. And that's because, you know, they're growth stocks and people are buying into them based on the story or their prospects or whatever else they want to get into. So... It's not like you should buy the highest thing on the QAV buy list and short the lowest thing. They both can win. But over time, and I did this, remember we talked about this early on in QAV, I did a reverse QAV portfolio and put together a, a portfolio based on very um, low and negative QAV scores. So the way at the bottom of our download, um, and they performed well for a time, but as soon as interest rates started to rise, they crashed because um, they were growth stocks, right? And they were, all, they were all based on people being able to have access to easy money to invest in a speculative stock. So, And that's been my experience. Um, sometimes growth outperforms value, but value in the long run does better than growth. And mm. if you accept that, then you've got to try and quantify that. And that's the other mm. thing I like about QAB is I don't have to go through and personally analyze the business prospects for every stock on the ASX. I can filter it. And then put a score mm. against things, and then and then stack rank it, and, and look at the mm. look at the the ones at the top of our list. So yeah, so um, I think I think Phil's right, and I think you're right. We are better off buying from the buy list end of the QAV ranking, but whether it's point one or point two isn't doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. But I think it does to be a value investor over time. Because mm. it's helping us identify the companies that have got correct. A- so what we would call a, a solid business in a traditional sense. And look, that's traditionally, that's what happens in the stock market. The boring businesses get overlooked until there's a recession or a crunch, and then suddenly they're like gold. Anyone that's making money is then highly sought after, and then they, everyone rushes to them. So if you buy them when they're out of favor and wait for them to get into favor, it's a good way to make money. Yeah. Like you've said, and I, I quote this all the time when I'm trying to explain QAV to people, basically all the system does is it identifies the company. They've got a good track record of being well run, but also tells us when we can buy them at a discount to yeah. an intrinsic valuation measurement. Yeah, correct. And then it tells us when to sell. Yeah, which is important. important part of it. Yeah. yeah. Most, most people who offer any sort of financial advice tell you when to buy, but don't say a thing about selling. Yes. Yeah. That's sort of the, the other key part of it. 
Yeah, or they adopt okay. rebalancing strategies, which I'm not a fan of either. Mm. Um, thank you for the thank question, DJG Phil, um, and to the the lovely Alex for reading the question. <laughs> How's my painting coming along, Alex? Where's easy it at? Easy peasy. Give me a percentage. Great. What percentage? Good. Seventy okay. percent. Do I have to? If I applied the QAV checklist <laughs> over it, what score <laughs> would it get? Is it quality? And am I getting it at a good price? It's, it's quality and, <laughs> and when do value. I sell it? <laughs> in about ten years' time, when Alex when is you're, painting you're for a million dollars, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, Lovely. We'll All right. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thanks. Have a great week. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week. Runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., Sign up for the two-week free trial and check it all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus. And then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.